Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plotcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. In the homartiology portion this week, Doug gets into the Greek word that means abomination, which gets us into all of the apocalyptic and doom and gloom passages, which gives us the opportunity to tell you guys about Doug's Revelation commentary. The book of Revelation was written to do just that, reveal. But most commentaries nowadays either engage in bizarre speculations about the future, or they keep an embarrassed distance from all the apocalyptic events that the Apostle John says will shortly take place. Douglas Wilson provides a passage-by-passage walkthrough of the entire book, showing that the book of Revelation is about the triumph of the church, which always happens when the man comes around. Get Doug's Revelation commentary, When the Man Comes Around, today at canonpress.com. So welcome to the podcast, episode 159. Good to have you um, with us, and I hope the traffic is not too bad where you are. So what are we going to talk about this time? I want to talk about masks and leaving a church. Masks and leaving a church. I blogged about this recently, but I wanted to talk about it also. My colleague, my fellow minister, Toby Sumter, and I, for a number of few months now, have been writing somewhat vigorously against the uh, uh, mandatory masking mandates that have been imposed in various uh, locations, either by governors or by uh, mayors or city councils or whatnot. And it's been very obvious that we take a, uh, a dim view of the efficacy of such masks, the constitutionality of such masks, the justice or what we would consider the injustice of such masking requirements. And we've not been shy about saying what we think about it. The end result of this, however, one, one of the consequences of this is that around the country in different places where the elders of churches have required masks in order to attend uh, worship, there are people in those congregations who have dissented from those decisions and have been reading what we wrote and have appealed to what we wrote in defense of what they are arguing for, uh, which is that they ought not to be required to wear a mask uh, in order to worship the Lord. So uh, now I'm, in, I'm entirely in sympathy with that. My conscience would not allow me to wear a mask while worshiping God. Um, now, you, you might say, well, seriously, are you kidding me? Are you, if you're a brain surgeon and you're masked up doing a delicate operation, you're saying that as long as the mask's on, you can't pray. And if you can pray in the operating room, or if you're a deep sea diver with a helmet on, you can you can pray with the helmet on, or if you're an astronaut, you can pray with your spacesuit on, then why on earth can't you come into worship service and pray with a cloth mask on? There are a lot of arguments involved in this, and I, I refer you to my blog posts on it. The tag would be uh, coronavirus. If you go to blog, mayblog, uh, dougwills.com and look for the tag coronavirus, you know, there, there are a whole host of th- reasons why. Uh, I would take the stand that I do. But let's just assume for the sake of discussion that I'm wrong, that my conscience is ill-informed. The New Testament tells us how to handle cases of conscience. So I believe that elders of, the elders of the church 
would be mistaken if they didn't make some sort of accommodation for people who had, you know, their, their best parishioners. So we're, what we're dealing with, uh, let me inject something else here. There are a number of churches that were slowly dying on the vine anyway, or there was a slow drift leftward was apparent. And you've got good Christians in those churches. They joined 10 years ago, but it seems to them that the session is starting to go woke. Certain Black Lives Matter stuff is creeping into sermons, and they're, they're, they've been kind of worried about it. And then this COVID thing hit, and then the elders require, require masks to worship. Well, if you leave under those circumstances, you're not leaving because of the masks. Uh, when the last straw happens, you're not leaving because of the last straw. It's the, the, there's a whole complex uh, story here. So, uh, what I'm talking about here is if you have, uh, if you're a member of an otherwise faithful church, an otherwise faithful church, they're orthodox, they take the right stands, they're courageous, they do what they ought to do, an otherwise faithful church, then you need to take that into account. You can't just say, they made a decision that I believe to be erroneous, I'm out of here. By the same token, I think that those elders need to ask, is this parishioner who's balking at this, this parishioner who's having trouble with this and whose conscience doesn't let them do this, is that parishioner an otherwise faithful parishioner? If they've been a rebellious and surly sort that gripes about every decision and finally throws down about the masks, then, okay, yeah, that, tells you, that tells you everything you need to know. So, let's assume good-hearted Christians, good-hearted pastor, faithful pastor, faithful elders, and faithful church member. This unexpected situation sort of drops on them, and the governor mandates masks, and the elders say, we think Romans 13 requires us to comply, and you've got to comply. And now, I would say that a member of a church shouldn't violate his conscience, should stay home or visit other churches during this time, and then come back, having kept the peace, you know, he's, he comes back and doesn't separate from the church over that, doesn't pull his membership, doesn't leave over that. Now, if the elders say that you must wear a mask in order to come to worship, and because you're a member here, we're going to require you to be at worship every Sunday, then a person who's conscience-bound, that's a checkmate situation. They've, they've got nowhere to go. And if you say you're sinning against this passage, if you, if you leave the church, well, yeah, they're, but they're sinning against another, their, their understanding of their own conscience issues if they come. So you, you've, what, what you've done is you've absolutely trapped them. They have, no, they have no real option, provided they do it graciously and submissively and without bitterness and without rancor. I believe that it's uh, permissible for someone to leave under those circumstances, but they should leave in such a way as to not disrupt the fellowship or to, leaving a church is not the same thing as uh, schism. In my blog post, I use the illustration, if you've been coming to church and driving 45 minutes to do so, and then a church of the same denomination is planted 10 minutes on the other side of you, you can transfer your church membership. You can stop going to one church and uh, start going to another one without a spirit of schism at all. Leaving a church is not the same thing as rebelling against a church. And you could also remain in the church and have you know, a little rain cloud of schism and malice hovering over your head the whole time. That's, that's no good either. So. I believe that the New Testament teaches, the New Testament requires us, when it comes to cases of conscience, to work with one another. 
receive one another on these things, but not to disputes about debatable matters, as, as it says in Romans 14. If this is an issue of adiaphora, and I believe that it is, I can, under certain circumstances, wear a cloth mask, as I did. We just, um, Nancy and I just uh, had to fly somewhere this last weekend, and in order to be on the airplane, you had to wear a mask. And so I don't think it's a sin to strap a piece of cloth on your face. If I did, I wouldn't do it. I do have a problem with appearing before God. Uh, we, we're to, with unveiled face, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, we behold the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. I think that uh, in our face, we bear the image of God. And there, so there's something about worship that puts it in a different category than uh, going to get a haircut and needing to wear a mask in order to get your haircut. So all of these things come together in this one thing. Is this a legitimate issue of conscience? And let's run this scenario, even assuming that the people who kick against wearing a mask in worship are the weaker brothers. I don't think that's true, but let's say, let's just assume that they are the weaker brothers. I believe the New Testament teaches us what to do in those circumstances. And that means that if you, if you wind up leaving a church non-rebelliously, without rancor, without name-calling, all of that, if you wind up leaving a church over this, it wouldn't be over the masks. It would be over how the elders handle cases of conscience. That would be the more pressing issue. That would be the more important issue. But having said all that, I would encourage, if, and if masking is the only thing, I would urge both elders and parishioners to do everything within their power to work it out. If you've already left, go back and make things right. If you are thinking about leaving, don't leave unless you just have no other options. Continuing with podcast episode 159, we, here we are with hamartiology again. The next word in our study of hamartiology is bedeligma, B-D-E-L-U-G-M-A, bedeligma. And this is the verb that means abomination. There are a number of different ways that this uh, word is used. The word is translated as abomination, but it shows up in different contexts. The first use refers to the desecration of the temple that Daniel predicted, and this is referred to in both Matthew and Mark. In Matthew 24, 15, it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. All right, that's Matthew 24, 15. Then, a very similar way in Mark 13, 14, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. What Daniel was predicting was the desecration of the temple under Antiochus Epiphanes. After Alexander, uh, Alexander's uh, Hellenistic empire fragmented into various pieces, and one of the pieces was ruled by Antiochus Epiphanes, and he desecrated the temple. I believe he sacrificed a pig in there, and you know, and so that was the abomination of desolation that Daniel predicted. And then when the Jews revolted against uh, their overlords, which is told in the story about that is um, told in, in Maccabees in the Apocrypha, uh, Judas Maccabeus um, successfully led the Jews in revolt. And then after they had won their independence, 
what do we do with this desecrated temple? Well, they cleansed the temple. They had a festival of cleansing, which became known as the Festival of Lights uh, or Hanukkah. We have two Jewish festivals that were not stipulated in the law uh, of the Old Testament. So, uh, Passover was required by the law. The, the tabernacles was uh, required by the law. But the two festivals that were not in the Torah, not in the law of God, were Hanukkah. That originated in the intertestamental period after the cleansing of the temple from the abomination of desolation. Then in the book of Esther, there's the festival of Purim that was established to commemorate the deliverance of the Jews there. So that was a biblical event, but it was not required by the law. So after the abomination of desolation under Antiochus Epiphanes, Jesus then basically says, it's going to happen again. There's going to be an abomination of desolation. So Antiochus Epiphanes was act one, act two is coming. Now, I think there are two possible reference for this in my view. One is the desecration of the temple conducted by the Romans when they finally overran it in 70 AD. So when the eagles of the Roman legions were the idolatrous eagles were brought into the temple grounds, that would be the introduction of basically these idolatrous symbols are here in the temple in the holy place. Uh, so that's one view of the abomination of desolation that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. The second possibility is that of the Jewish defenders who were corrupt and evil men who fought their way back to the temple and desecrating it by their vile presence. Josephus has a great deal to say with uh, say about how wicked the Jewish defenders of Jerusalem were. When the Romans came against Jerusalem uh, and Jerusalem holed up for the siege, there were different factions or different parties inside Jerusalem. The really bad dudes came out on top, and they fought their way back to the temple. And so the second, um, uh, the second view is the, the one I incline to, which is the, the abomination of desolation was the result of their corrupt defense of the temple. Uh, another occasion is right after Jesus said that it was not possible to serve both God and mammon, uh, he had to deal with the scorn of the Jewish leaders who loved their money. All right, so in Luke sixteen fifteen, and he said unto them, ye, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus is saying here, what men call a respectable income, God calls an abomination. Then, in the book of Revelation, we return to the idea of desecration and the freedom from desecration. The harlot in the, the, the whore that rides the beast, the harlot is old Jerusalem, uh, in my understanding of Revelation. Old Jerusalem was intended to be the holy city, but had been corrupted by her abominations. So there's two, um, Revelation 17.4 and the next verse 17.5. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations. There, she had a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, this is something we're going to come up against in a, a related word, a cognate word in a future, uh, in a future podcast. 
But basically, there is uh, this sense of loathsomeness or abominations is heightened by luxury and good appearance. So notice it's, it's not just abominations. It's a golden cup full of abominations. There's a sensate, luxurious approach to these things, which is depraved at the heart. And this, uh, this way, this behavior of the old Jerusalem, this behavior of the great harlot, is contrasted with the new Jerusalem, a holy city that cannot be corrupted. Um, John is taken by the angel up to a high mountain, and he's shown the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband, pure, virginal, uh, white. And there shall, in Revelation 21, 7 says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in the New Jerusalem, abominations cannot come. So for my book review uh, this time around, this is episode 159 of the podcast. The book review is um, a book entitled Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret. This is written by a gent named Vinat. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. V-E-I-N-O-T, Vinat and Marcia Montenegro. So it's uh, two, two authors, Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret. A lot of churches, now they may have been distracted by this whole COVID thing. We may have been given other things to think about. But over the last several years, a number of Christians, evangelical Christians, have started to promote or toy with or work with uh, the Enneagram as a um, as a means of testing your personality is taken as a personality test, much like uh, Myers-Briggs or, you know, the, the different ways of evaluating what kind of person you are. Now, this book is helpful in that it shows, it shows that the beginnings of the Enneagram are not ancient. It does not go back to the early church fathers. It's not an ancient sort of thing at all. And it began in very much in the modern era. I think the, the first beginnings of it would be in the 19th century. And it was uh, developed and heavily promoted by people who were, frankly, New Age occultic types. So some of the secrets of the Enneagram were, were developed through automatic writing, which is uh, those who study this know this, uh, would identify as a demonic type of activity. So this, the, the source and origin of the Enneagram is um, squarely and solidly in uh, the New Age movement. But within the last uh, several years, uh, InterVarsity Press um, picked up a book uh, or published a book promoting uh, basically the Enneagram approach for Christians and as a personality test. As the Enneagram began and was developed, it was not developed as a, it was not used as a personality test until just very recently. It was uh, intended as a, a way of approaching the face of God. How, how do you, it's new age stuff. So let's talk about personality types. Um, now, everybody, anybody who pays any kind of attention to the world knows that there are different kinds of personalities out there. Well, there is um, Pooh, and then there's Piglet, and there's Eeyore, and there's Tigger, and there's rabbit. So that you've been, those are the basic personality types. 
the ancient Greeks had, um, you know, there was the phlegmatic and the choleric and the uh, melancholic and uh, the sanguine. So the sanguine is the bouncy ticker type and the phlegmatic is poo and laid back and, you know, take it easy. And, and the choleric is to take charge rabbit sort of uh, uh, type. And the melancholic is Eeyore, uh, the introspective, uh, how, how are you? Not very how, thank you. It is very plain that God has made different types of people, different kinds of people. You've got Puddleglum in the Narnia stories is a good example of an Eeyore type or a melancholic or someone who always sees the glass half empty. Given that, you could flip a coin 20 times and, and you could say that every third time is going to give, give me some information about what kind of personality you are. And it, you can give s- some sort of arbitrary indicator, arbitrary sign. It, it, it would be very hard to be consistently wrong. So the Enneagram is this uh, circle with nine points on it with different, li- you know, different lines drawn to different points on the circle. And this is used as a term, uh, as, a, as an instrument for doing personality testing. The origins of the Enneagram are not suspect. The origins of the Enneagram are occultic, New Age, non-Christian, pagan, unbelieving. And the, uh, the synchronism that has happened as some Christians have adopted the Enneagram, the plausibility that the Enneagram has as a personality test is a plausibility that has been brought to it. In other words, we're not learning anything new. We already knew that there were tiggers and eeyores. We already knew that there were rabbits and poos. We already knew that there were melancholics and cholerics and phlegmatics and, and, and so on. So if your church is dabbling in the Enneagram, if you've got friends who are experimenting with it or reading up on it, I would encourage you to get this book, Richard Rohr. Uh, Richard Rohr is a New Age uh, slash Catholic priest who has done a great deal to promote the Enneagram. So this book concentrates heavily on the history of it, where it comes from. Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret, Benot and Montenegro. You will be um, duly informed. It's a good book. Mm-hmm.